The Accutron Show. Accutron. It's not a timepiece. It's a conversation piece. With your host, Bill McCuddy, and contributors, Scott Alexander and David Graver. The only reason for all of this is to help guide you towards the things that you like. If you, as you're tasting, think, hmm, what... What does this wine remind me of? And do I like those things? And if you do like those things, then look for wines with those same descriptors the next time around. That was the voice of Mika Bulmash. She's the founder and CEO of Wine for the World, a wine company that connects sustainable, socially responsible, and artisanal products with mindful, adventurous palates. And us. She actually brought some wine for us to taste. Welcome to the Accutron Show. I'm Bill McCuddy, ably assisted in this drinking exercise. This week by Scott Alexander, as always. I'll do my best. And and David Graver from Cool Hunting. Uh, We're going to learn a lot about wine from this young woman. She goes all over the planet. I thought you had a good job, Graver, but she goes all over the planet sampling uh, wines. And she's going to tell us some things about, first of all, where the great ones are coming from. And they're not all necessarily from France or Italy, the places that we always think of. And uh, I I guess my question before we bring her in for you guys is uh, the first great glass of wine you had where you knew this was something special. And was it around an occasion or were you just popping open a Merlot with a steak? My, uh, when I got married, my father-in-law opened up a 1968 bottle of Bordeaux that absolutely melted my brain. And would you have called yourself a connoisseur of wine before that or, or it was aware a real, of? It was a widening experience. I did not know wine could be that big. David? It's a very tricky question for me. I don't know wine as well as I know champagne, and I know champagne is is wine. So I keep defaulting there because I was at the Abbey of Dom Perignon uh, in France, and I did go back to the 60s through their vintages, and that was a remarkable experience. But as far as still wines go... Gentlemen, I am drinking stars. <laughs> I had a Romani Conti. Did his fit. Bentley drive him there? That's my only question. I don't... Wine is so tricky for me because... There are so many words that I can't wrap my head around, and it's and not so just many varietals. I, exactly. So many varietals, so many grapes, so many things that we should be seeking, and I often lose track of what I actually like. Is that what makes it intimidating? Is that To this day, I still open up a wine list at a restaurant, and I yeah. go, I have no idea what I, I'm doing I think here. some of this is intentional, though. I think sommeliers are sort of like the OG hipsters. Like They're like, oh, have you heard of this band, uh, Deer Scallion? Oh, they're amazing. Oh, you don't know them? Okay, cool. And it's like that on wine lists. They make these lists intentionally so that you have no idea what you're doing. I never know if they're being legit or whether they're getting a free trip to... Uh, <laughs> oh, to a vineyard. Yeah. 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 No, but they, if they confuse you enough, you're just going to choose based on price and um, probably pay a lot of money for something you have no idea what you're getting. You ever send back an expensive bottle of wine? I personally have not, but I've been at a table where someone has. I was embarrassed, but the wine was corked, and that was the correct thing to do. If it's a very expensive bottle of wine, that's when you must send it back yes. if it is bad. Because you're, you're, you're going to spend $300 on a bottle of wine and, and it'd be bad? No, I had a half more. bottle at 21 here in the city one time, but was uh, Chateau Lafitte from—we were there. It was a celebration— uh, but not that big because we only ordered a half bottle. And the <laughs> and the guy came the the Somalia with the big gold thing around like Mr. T. And I have no idea what that does. And and he <laughs> he we tasted it and it was not right. And he came over and uh, absolutely agreed. 
and then kicked us out. No, uh, and then, <laughs> right. and, and exactly. went back and got the same little 61 Leto, whatever. And it was much better the second time around, especially with those hamburgers. So, um, but uh, look, a lot of great wines are coming from around the world, but there's a lot of amazing wines being made in the United States now and not just in California. I want to know about that. I also want to know about uh, Mrs. McCutty's worried about the pesticides that are going into some of these. And there have been some very famous uh, stories about whether or not we can drink and what really is organic. I think we're going to learn that there are a couple of different definitions for organic, that it floats in different levels. And I wonder if there are any sustainable rules around the world when it comes to wine. I'm guessing not. Uh, but country to country is probably real different. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's an, there's like no NATO on wine. There's no like group that sits down. Uh, I mean, sommeliers do all the time, but I don't think there are any established rules. And so we're going to learn about that. Yeah. You guys know I love my history. Um, and America gets short shrift sometimes in world wine culture, but, um, you know, our vines are transplanted all over the world, and we've got this, you know, increasing um, respect for California, you know, in, in the world. But do you guys know who started the first commercial winemaking operation in the United States? George Washington. It was Thomas Jefferson. Oh, so but with close. investment Jefferson. from George Washington. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it was before the Revolutionary War. Jefferson uh, had been in France, had gotten a taste for the French wine. In the U.S., they were making this sweet, highly alcoholic but very sweet wine in a completely different style. Um, Jefferson went over there, these these lower alcohol content, drier wines. He got a real taste for it and was like, went back to Virginia and was, and was like, hey, the climate is the same. The uh, the land, the earth is pretty good. And an uh, Italian vigneron was actually coming to the United States to try to plant, uh, make wine. He was on his way to Georgia and stopped to see Jefferson. And he had a bunch of guys and a bunch of vines. And Jefferson was like, can we plant those here instead? And he did. Wow. And that's when they planted Mazzello. And they planted this guy, Mazai's. Uh, he bought a plantation next door. They planted that, which was all great. And they started the Virginia Wine Company with investment from George Washington and a bunch of other founding fathers. And then the war starts. And then Grant drank it all. Like, well, <laughs> the, well, the war starts. Check this out. The war starts. The, it takes seven or eight years for a vineyard to mature. Right, so the wine they're making is terrible for the first few years. It, like it's just, it's just not good. They finally get to the point where it's getting good, but that's when the war is getting bad. They're out of money. They send Mazai back to Italy to get money from his rich pals, and when he's gone, they've captured a Hessian general. He's he's a nobleman from from Germany, but he's a mercenary fighting on on the side of the British. He's a POW, and they're like, well, he's like, well, when he's gone, can I? I'll rent your chat, your plantation from you. So he rents Mazai's plantation, stables his horses in the vineyard. They destroy the vineyard. And so the Virginia Wine Company closes without producing a single bottle. Oh, oh wow. The Ken Burns of wine. <laughs> Scott Alexander joins us. So that predates California. That predates California. Jefferson Virginia, and Virginia was the first winemaking region in the United States, and is still. There's a lot of good wine coming out of there. In fact, uh, Monticello, where Jefferson lived, is currently a winery. Mazai's Winery is now Dave Matthews's winery, which is across the street. It's a biodynamic, fully eco, everything else. The and Dave the, Matthews, and there's yeah, the musician Dave Matthews. He's from uh, Virginia, um, where Monticello is, and then there's a third um, American. Historic Presidential Connection Winery there across the street is Trump Winery. Not kidding. Not a joke. 
Do we taste a lot of wine over at that cushy job you have at Cool Hunting? I do indeed. <laughs> and one thing that I've learned that I'm sure that Mika will support is that all of the rules are changing. All the rules in wine are changing. One of the most successful and shared articles I ever wrote about was about an Oregon wine in a can. And it happened to be one of the most delectable, delicious products I'd ever had. And I cracked open a beer can <laughs> and drank the wine. And of course, that's a very shareable story because everyone was like, why is there wine in this can? But at the end of the day, all that really matters is the wine tasted good. Was it a rosé? Right. No, it was a Pinot Noir. <laughs> really? In a can. Pinot Noir in a can. Pinot Noir in a can. Did you decant it? Did you put it in a glass? You I just drank it right out of the can. Well, the bummer, like the thing about that is, you do. I think you would want to put it in a glass, ideally, because that you're not going to get the nose. You're not going to get everything else. Same as like when they at get least a, a straw. For when, the you love a, of God. when you get a cup of coffee and they put the lid on it, you're like, I'm losing half the experience <laughs> of the true. coffee because I'm not smelling it. <laughs> I think she's going to bring a little more sophistication to this wine conversation, but uh, she does have a great gig. She travels the world and is going to tell us what some of the new trends are and whether or not we're drinking the right thing. And then I think she's going to bring a little something for us to taste uh, in a very unconventional uh, setting. I think it's in a bottle, but I think what's going to be on top of that bottle will surprise you. Mika Bulmash is from Wine for the World, and she has brought it to our little world on the Accutron Show. And she joins us right after this. The world runs on Accutron time. Accutron watches since 1960 from New York City to around the world. Bullmish joins us on the Accutron Show to talk about wine, how it's changing, and whether or not this country, America, has any shot at producing some world-class wines. Mika, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, we're, we'll change that. No, <laughs> did you bring any wine for us to drink? I did. Oh, <gasps> exciting. Good. And where is it from? Uh, it is from South Africa. Okay. So tell us a little bit about what's going on in the world of wine in terms of What's what's exciting, what's hot, and where it's headed, in your opinion? So the U.S. wine industry is going through a really interesting time right now. I'd say that the wine industry at large, not just focused in the U.S., but there have been a lot of changes over the last 40, 50 years, uh, starting with when organics began to take place uh, in not just grapes and, and the wine industry, but more in amongst most agricultural commodities. And so you started seeing more and more organic production. It uh, doesn't mean that consumers necessarily followed suit. That was a bit of a slower build. Right. So organic wine didn't really start becoming uh, in, uh, showcased really until the last few years. With Is that this growing now though? You're seeing that kind of take off? So the, the, the industry sort of pushed this first and it took, it was like a 20-year gap before consumers were like, hey, you know what? I do like organic things. It's actually the other way around. So certain very uh, passionate consumers were behind the driving process for getting organics out there. And then uh, with that, you also had biodynamics and, and natural wine. There are so many buzzwords that are, are in the wine industry, organic, sustainable, socially responsible, biodynamic. What should we be holding on to? Should we be seeking out them all? Can we seek them seek them all out? They're all probably better than wines that don't necessarily have those words attached to them uh, from a philosophical standpoint, at least from where I stand. Not to say that conventional wine is bad, but there are better options, better for you as an individual, what you want to put in your body, better for the planet, better for the people who are part of making the wine, um, better for what I like to think of as uh, far as transforming the industry. 
my business, we try to democratize the wine industry. So if you can be a part of that small change while enjoying what you're drinking at the same time and not compromise your wallet or your values, then I think that's what you're going to um, really be delighted with. Do those words have the force of law or of regulation behind them? Like sometimes you hear something like natural, and natural can mean a whole lot of things that don't necessarily feel natural. Do these words, biodynamic, that has a strict definition that you know you're getting something specific? Yes. So organic has a certified definition, biodynamic as well. Natural is one of these a little bit elusive terms that it, it depends on the eye of the beholder. Do you right. do a lot of educating? <laughs> do you have to do a lot of educating? Yes, absolutely. So not not only consumers, but also within trade. I'll often go and, and meet a customer of ours and they'll ask me for basically a primer on what natural wine is or what is an orange wine? How is that made? And why why should I be drinking that? Is it made from oranges? Why should I be selling this? So it's uh, it's definitely an interesting um, new or newer set of, of products that's becoming available right Are now. Are there some countries in the world that have always been doing it organically and didn't use pesticides or didn't use any of the uh, the other things? Or has everybody sort of been putting bug killer in the, in the vineyards and, and trying to maximize the crops any way they can. So it's said that many French producers have done organics and biodynamics for a very long time. I, I take a little bit of issue with that because if you're not being certified, you don't have the forcing function of being consistent every vintage on vintage. So what that means is even producers, some of the producers that we work with, they are organically uh, motivated. They will try to farm organically and sustainably 99% of the time, but that 1% of the time when there's uh, heavy rains and you have more bugs that are coming or mildew that are uh, affecting your crop, they're going to have to use something to sustain their, their livelihoods. And so they'll often use something that's a little bit stronger. We encourage our producers and we work we look for producers that will use more natural products that will so there are steps they can take in those bad circumstances to remain inside the boundaries of organic? Yes. Mm-hmm. So they can spray with sulfur. They can spray with something that's inorganic, like a, a commercially available pesticide. We prefer them to not use the latter. Gotcha. Can, can you explain to us how you bring wines to the United States? Like, <laughs> I know that's a big question, but you're hunting for wines. Yes. And then you're selling them here. Yes. So that's the fun job is, is the hunting. The sourcing of wine is... As beautiful as you might imagine it can be, you're going to vineyards and you're looking for really tiny producers that are unheard of. It does take a lot of work. It's not entirely romantic. There is a lot of time that I spend looking online, looking in different languages and translating those languages into English to try to find what's being consumed locally from the small producers or at small artisan fairs that aren't yet commercially available in the U.S. So it's a lot of digging, a lot of uh, research, and then there's usually a lot of driving. In February last year, I was six months pregnant and driving around Spain with my husband. We, we covered about 3,000 kilometers. Ooh. So, you know, it. Did you have to taste? You couldn't <laughs> taste when you were pregnant, could I, you? I did. But you, you spit out? Spit. You were yes. like a, a rinse and spit person? Yes. I'm, I've often said David has the best job on the planet, but you are right up there. In the top <laughs> yeah, five, going good. to vineyard after vineyard, just trying out wines. But it is exhausting when you when you visit four, six, sometimes more vineyards in a day. Yeah, that sounds like a living hell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, it seems like there's these kind of waves we've gone through uh, around the world of you know about 
20 years ago, we started seeing a lot of wines coming from Australia. Um, these different trends. Obviously, we've been getting wines from Germany and France for forever. Um, what are the kind of new areas that are coming online in terms of really high quality production in unusual parts of the world? So, one of the ones that I'm most excited about personally is South Africa. Mm -hmm. I think South Africa represents tremendous quality for value wines. You also have a really interesting merging of what you would call old world and new world wine styles. With the kind of technological revolution that's been happening, um, developing countries now, when they come up, they can kind of skip the industrial revolution a lot of times, and they can start putting in practice solar like way ahead of things. And I'm wondering if there's something like that that happens in wine, where if a country is relatively young in its years of wine production, they're able to benefit from all these best practices that are now being done in the rest of the industry. Is that valid? In short, no. <laughs> okay. So, that's why I asked. <laughs> well, be because so far, South Africa, they've been making wine for over 365 years. Okay. So it's it's been a long time coming. Uh, the U.S., in, in comparison, there's been grape growing that's existed since at least the year 1000, which is when the Vikings came over to the U.S. and, and called the land Vinland because they saw a plethora of vines growing, which is kind of a not well-known fact. The U.S. has been growing grapes for a long time, too. But if we're talking about quality production, they're probably parallel to where South Africa is. Uh, if not, South Africa has been growing Vitis vinifera grapes commercially a bit longer. Mm -hmm. I'm very curious. As a New Yorker, if I'm looking for a wine, so often do I default to something from Napa Valley? Because as an American, that is like the, the quality American wine. Otherwise, we always look to the prestige of France or Italy. It's so hard to break out of that cycle. How are you going to break people out of that cycle and introduce more adventurous wines? Well, I think you have to start with, and what we do is we partner with retailers and restaurants who are a bit more adventurous, and they have their the clientele approach them because they want to explore and they don't want the monotony of the same French wine or the same, not that every French wine is, is the same, to be sure. There are many beautiful French wines and I enjoy them too, but they want something, these consumers want something that brings them alive a little bit in, in a new way. We work with, for example, Brazilian wines. Brazil, a lot of people are kind of confused. I didn't know that they made wine. I thought they were just known for their beaches. And in fact, in the south of Brazil, at very high altitude, in the same kind of latitude that you find wine-growing regions from Argentina and, and Uruguay and, and Chile, you see uh, really beautiful uh, vineyards for the production of especially sparkling wine. Help me with, a, with something I've heard, which is that even in California, where there's an organic uh, vineyard, if there is a non-organic vineyard above it on the same like mountainside, some of that pesticide will roll down into the organic. Is that true? And is there any way that we can have a pure, clean, organic wine if that's the case? You can if your neighbors are also organic. And that is one of the challenges with certifying organic because you can do everything as, as a producer that you possibly can to ensure that your vines and, and ultimately your wine will be organic. But if you do have runoff because there's rain and, and your neighbor is spraying uh, very wildly with their pesticides all over the bordering land, then you are going to run into to some It's of a problem. Things. It is. Yeah, and it's been reported, and I just wanted to make sure it wasn't one of those things that's overreported that's become sort of a media thing, but uh, you drink California wines and you don't think there's any problem with them. Well, I, I do drink California wines. 
I specifically look for wines that are those buzz buzzwords that we mentioned before, organic, biodynamic, natural. So uh, I, I do look for producers that have that philosophy. It's it's really hard to be completely narrow-minded and, and have a, the inability to be flexible with what you're drinking. At the same time, there are strategies that wineries can take in order to ensure that they are buoyed by the, this their neighboring vineyards. Um, one of our producers is called Vinícola Geis, and they're located in, in southern Brazil as we were talking about Brazilian wineries. And they employ a practice called thermal pest control, which is essentially a large turbine that they of, of heat that they apply to the vineyards at short stints. So instead of spraying regularly as their neighboring vineyards do, uh, they actually will apply this this heat turbine, which it's like a heat gun, kind of. It's it's like it's a blow dryer, like <laughs> kind, a kind of like a big blow, yeah, big, like, big blow dryer. It's, it's quite large. I'm okay. guessing it's uh, a Dyson. Goes on the goes on the back <laughs> of a truck or something. Yeah. Okay. And and so it's short bursts of high heat, which not only gets rid of and the bugs. And they blow hot air, basically, over the vines. Yes. And not only does it get rid of the bugs, but it actually stresses the vines out. And as some of us might be aware, when you stress vines out, it improves quality. So mm. they are actually considered the best producer in Brazil. That sounds more expensive than spraying. Nothing sounds more delicious than a stressed out vine. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to know, like, what you would say to a consumer who is scared to leave the norm, what would you say to someone who is only drinking American wine or only drinking French or Italian? Come join us. <laughs> <laughs> it's so intimidating. You know you hear this all the time. And you open a wine list in a restaurant or you go to those wine stores and it's just it, – it, it needs to be dumbed down for me. I'm sorry. It just does. I, it's, otherwise, I'm really just looking for the prettiest label. Yeah, what's a good way to get your feet wet? Yeah. So besides stomping the grapes, <laughs> that is true. Uh, a couple of a couple of questions there. So, how can you broaden your horizon in wine? First, I'd say find a retailer near you that you trust, because a good wine store will be a curator in and of themselves, and they will have a steward who can help direct you to something more adventurous if you ask them. And the more you frequent that store, the more they'll be familiar with your palate and they'll be able to encourage you in a new direction. Now, I know that not everyone who's probably listening has a, such a store in their backyard or their neighborhood. Uh, what I would say is try to do some research. What we try to do on our wines is we actually put on our back labels icons and it says social responsibility, environmental sustainability, minimal intervention, women winemakers, vegan, you know, all of the things that some consumers might be drawn towards some of the, those words or, or philosophies and others towards all or none. But at least there's a little bit more transparency behind what you're getting in the bottle. And so what I'd say for those consumers who are looking to explore, turn the bottle around, read the story, read about the importer who's importing the wines or the distributor, uh, if, if that's information is available, or of course the winery, um, and do your best to be open to suggestions of why don't you try this wine from Greece because you're looking for a bright white wine and maybe uh, a Californian white wine, a Sauvignon Blanc or a Chardonnay isn't what necessarily will fill that role for you. 
I'll tell you what I did one time in Manhattan, and it was I wanted to do exactly what you were describing. I wanted to go in and meet the guy that was going to spend like a half an hour with me and sort of give me the education. And what ended up happening on Madison Avenue on a Saturday was they were crazy busy. So I looked at the guy and I said, here's an amount of money. I want 12 different wines and send me that case. This is what I like. I like dry, I like red, I like that. And it was one of the best experiences I ever had because he took a big sigh and said, thank you. And the next day showed up at my door because it was a local delivery. About eight of the 12 I really enjoyed. And I never would have tried that otherwise. So I highly recommend that as kind of a way to kind of demystify it a little bit. Another good strategy is especially in New York, but throughout the United States, a lot of distributors or producers themselves will do what what are called in-store tastings. So on a Friday or Saturday night, let's say four to seven or six to eight, there will be somebody that's often pouring wine. And if the company that's representing that wine is on the smaller side, chances are you might even have the proprietor do the pouring. I was doing a pouring on Saturday and, you know, and it was a very engaging discussion that I had with people coming in who were asking really thoughtful questions about the South African wines that I was pouring. So, you know, you might have that experience. You might have a sales representative from that company. You might not, uh, but at least you have to do the tasting. It's like, it's like when you go to a famous place, always read the plaque. You go to a wine store, always do the tasting. This is a chance, a free chance to, you're not obligated to buy the wine, but it's just going to expand your palate. And again, like we've talked about so many times on the show, whether it's watches or cars or clothes, buy what you like. Like don't, you don't need to let the person in the store sell you something. If you like that, get it. If it's an $8 bottle of wine and you love it, you're lucky. (laughs) <laughs> I couldn't agree more. A lot of a lot of people are afraid of their own palates doing the talking and, and making the decisions for them. And at the end of the day, the only point of these descriptors, these fancy terms like, you know, the wine has high acid or uh, it, it tastes like cherry and potpourri and it smells like... The only reason for all of this is to help guide you as a consumer towards the things that you like. So if you like the $8.99 bottle of wine better for you. Like it's go for it. You know, it's, it's a, it's a great thing. And if you don't, then it's helpful if you, as you're tasting to try to think, Hmm, what, what does this wine remind me of? And do I like those things? And if you do like those things, then look for wines with those same descriptors the next time around. Has anybody successfully taken the soil from one country and moved it someplace else? I know that the Chinese were trying to make great reds for a while and there was they ran up in price and then they had kind of a crash there. Has anyone successfully transplanted the uh, the the French vine to South Africa or vice versa? So soil I don't know how customs would feel about that, but <laughs> but but vineyards we're bringing yes. 80 hectares of yeah. dirt on the plain. <laughs> But, but as far as, as vines go, yes, that, that is a practice that happens somewhat regularly. For example, um, the Boston family, as we were just talking about, they are a vine nursery. And they actually brought in Nero Davila from Sicily. And the process to do that is quite intense. So they brought in plant material. It had to undergo quarantine for a number of years. And then it had to survive the quarantine process, which they don't necessarily have a chance to oversee. It has to be a government overseeing oh process. So you can imagine some might 
not thrive. We're from the government. We're here to help your vines. <laughs> Great. We talked about going to a wine store and having someone help us pick out a, a great bottle of wine. That's sort of what the retailers are going to be doing when the Accutron watch is relaunched, because it's kind of new and yet old to the market and has to be explained in some ways. Uh, are you bullish on American wines? And if so, are they ever going to be as great out of California or here in Long Island as they are out of South Africa or France? There are a lot of amazing wines being produced in, in the U.S. and that have been produced. In fact, just this last week, I tried a Pinot Gris Rosé out of Oregon by a female producer, and it blew my mind. I'm not going to tell you the name because then somebody is going to buy the last six bottles. <laughs> <laughs> but it uh, there, there's fantastic wine that, that's being produced in the U.S., and, and as an importer and distributor, I'm excited to find those producers. We're actively looking for producers from the Finger Lakes, from California and Oregon, but also from Virginia and, and Texas and um in a lot of other regions in between, we hear there's wine even being grown in Wisconsin. So we're we're excited. Grapes being grown in Wisconsin. We're excited about the possibilities, and it is incumbent upon us as um, as tradespeople to work with and look for retailers who can properly reflect our values and communicate what we're mm -hmm. about. Yep. Well, speaking of what you're about, for people that want to know more about you and about what you're doing, uh, tell us where we can find you online. You can find us at www.wineforTheworld.com, and the four is the number. So wine, the number four, theworld.com. Kumbaya! <laughs> WineforTheworld.com. Hey, uh, Mika, thank you for joining us today on the Accutron Show. I feel uh, a little a little smarter about what to order the next time that intimidating wine list comes to me at a, at an, in a restaurant. Doesn't take much, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's easily established. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Accutron Show. Thanks for having me. On behalf of Cool Hunting's David Graver and Bon Vivant Scott Alexander, I'm Bill McCuddy for the Accutron Show. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The Accutron Show. To hear all our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. For upcoming guests as well as behind-the-scenes action, follow us on Instagram at AccutronWatch. From the 29th floor of the Empire State Building, until next time, Accutron time. Set your tuning forks.